Welcome back to Highly Respected's IQ Supplements. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we are joined by a guest. It is the host of Survive the Jive, Tom Rossell. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good, Scott. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to give, I like Tom's attitude. Tom has something to promote today. And, you know, I've had guests before who refuse to shill what they want to promote. But Tom has the entrepreneurial mindset and has something to promote before we begin our subject today, which is discussing the movie The Northman. So I will give the floor to Tom to promote what he's got to talk about. Well, basically, thanks for letting me do this, but. I know I used to work for WHO. I know all about conferences. I used to put on conferences, help help to arrange conferences in different countries and speak at conferences around the world. And right now, there are religious organizations or rather leaders of religious organizations being invited to speak at conferences all over the world to discuss the talking points uh, of the, you know, NGOs and international organizations and massive uh, corporations that global multinational corporations that uh, their talk their design talking points and catchphrases to, that that are intended to you know facilitate a, the transfer of power necessary for a new world order and uh, people in religious groups are being co-opted to do these things to help direct the people within their faiths towards this end. Well, I'm putting I I wish there was some a pagan group doing something to oppose it. I thought so. I don't know if there are any pagan people who are actually going to do that, so I'll do it myself. So I'm putting on a conference in London for any pagans to come. It's mainly it's directed at pagans to come together and discuss what it is that we believe and to what extent that is uh, incompatible with the proposed values of this new global humanity that, uh, that, that th organizations like the UN are claiming to serve. Uh, I assert that we do not, we can't be transhumanists and we have to oppose the, uh, you know, uncritical acceleration of the in integration of man and machine. Uh, we don't consider that a desirable outcome and that the, the, the perspective of death being an obstacle to overcome goes directly against our most fundamental religious principles. We believe that death is the f is the only objective uh, for life. It's the it's the the route to uh, reincarnation and the the process of uh, you know going to hell, going into the underworld, and then being reborn from it. That's what pagans believe in. Uh, if you don't believe in that process, if you're trying to avoid that process by avoiding death, then you're not really a pagan. And these kind of peoples and groups all talk about how they believe in religious freedom and everything. And that. I'm, we'll put that to the test. We'll come together. We'll assert what our religious beliefs require. And, uh, and we'll see how uh, the powers that be respond. But if you want to get involved, you can get your tickets at uh, Eventbrite. Um, the, the, the event is called Pagan Futures, and it will take place on the 25th of June. I won't be the only speaker. There's also Dr. Boya Villayonga, who is a, a, an established academic, a pagan, who knows a lot about um, the integration of traditionalist views into the modern world. And there will also be live music from Walkinsman, who's a pagan English uh, activist and also a musician. Uh, he was formed from the metal band um, Winter Filleth. And now he is uh, th that solo project, Walkinsman, who is responsible for the Survive the Jive theme tune, which you may know, the uh, Sunnah hymn. Uh, and I'm sure he'll perform that on the night. So I hope to see as many of you as uh, there as possible in June. All right. And I can speak. Walkinsman is a great band. I really like their albums. It's a very, it's very uplifting, very powerful neo-folk. I highly recommend listening to it. And I know many people here have uh, many different religious beliefs, so we're not we're not trying to proselytize here, but it, it would be an interesting event if you're interested in these ideas. And if you live in Europe, it would be a great event to attend. And if some of you may not, who are not familiar with Tom, he hosts a very popular YouTube channel or <laughs> Wait, or it was a previous channel. I do. He has suffered some censorship, as do anybody who is a free thinker for his ideas. He mainly talks about ancient history, uh, prehistory, a uh, lot of the 
ancient Indo-Europeans, and a particular focus of the subject is what we would necessarily call the Dark Ages and how European people were like and what their beliefs were and how their cultures were. So he would be a great expert to discuss the topic of the Northmen. If you guys have not seen the movie or somehow do not know what the movie is about, it's of course about the Vikings and a it's a interpretation of the Hamlet story. The main character's name is Hamlet, and it's based on the Danish legend that eventually came from Hamlet. I may, hopefully I'm not messing this up too much, but we'll of course let Tom take over in a minute or in a moment of me discussing the subject. So this is why I brought him on because he wrote a very interesting article about the movie and the religious themes and cultural themes in it. And so I think the best way to start on this is just to get your impression of what you thought the movie was like. I think you, in your article, you said it was one of the best Viking movies you've seen, possibly even the best. So I would like to get your take on what you view of the film's quality before we delve into its themes. Well, thanks for the introduction, Scott. Yeah, I, I did, I, I got a master's in medieval history and I studied Viking Age literature as part of that. And before that, I had a degree in media where I studied film. So. Um, this review I did called The Northman Pagan Themes Explained, I got a bit carried away with just talking about all the different historical themes and where it's accurate depictions of Vikings and paganism and whatnot and where they got their cues from. Uh, and I didn't talk so much about this, it, it as a piece of cinema but, uh, and, and, the, and the moral it contained. But it is uh, a very interesting, I think it's a very good film. I'm a fan of Robert Eggers. All his films have like folkloric and pagan themes. All of them deal with the supernatural. There's only three, really, three, four films. All of them deal with this thing of like, is this a supernatural event or is it someone's psychological state? So like atheists can watch it and, uh, you know, fedora tier people can say, yeah, that was just him having a mental breakdown. That wasn't real. And then people who are more esoterically inclined and like the mystical stuff can interpret it according to that. But it's worth saying, Edgar's last film, The Lighthouse, which didn't contain any explicit references to paganism, uh, Eggers said that the entire thing is a pagan myth and the characters in Lighthouse represent, uh, you know, mythological Greek figures from Greek paganism, Proteus and Prometheus. And he's invented a new myth in which Proteus and Prometheus exist together in one lighthouse, uh, which didn't, doesn't exist in actual Greek myths. So he's like developing pagan myths. That's, he, that's obviously an intention with his storytelling. So as a filmmaker, he's gone this time to the north and in, in integrating Germanic stuff in there. And it's great. Uh, I do I do think it's the best Viking film ever, but that that is not quite as uh, great praise as it may seem when you consider that most Viking films are pretty atrocious. Um, or even some that are good are just uh, are just so low budget that they're not quite that there. I compared it to Valhalla Rising in the sense that that was in 2009-10, that was a very esoteric kind of artsy Viking film, and I thought that was a good direction for Viking era cinema to go in. It hadn't really happened except for uh, Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring, which is also based on an ancient Scandinavian legend of a, of, of a Christian girl being killed by pagans. Uh, that's a very good film too. Uh, so, but it doesn't really feel like a Viking film because it doesn't have Vikings in it, but it's set in pagan era Scandinavia and it has Odin worship in it. So I'd probably say that's a better film than this. So if you include The Virgin Spring as a Viking film, then that, that's better than this. But I probably wouldn't because it, it doesn't have any Viking raids or anything commonly associated with Vikings, bar a, 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 a scene of Odinic worship. But this is chock-a-block full of Viking stuff. It's, you know, obviously a film about Vikings, and it comes from a Viking legend of Amleth from Snorri, uh, sorry, not Snorri, from uh, Saxo Grammaticus. And that became uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet. So this is not based on Hamlet uh, at all. It's based on Amleth, which is a different story, and it's much closer to Amleth. But it does take um, at least one thing from Hamlet, and I think that that's one of the best things it did, uh, and that's the severed head, which we can talk about later, because that's Yorick in, in the Hamlet play. But the rest of it follows more closely to Amleth. Uh, and I, I did say in my review, Amleth has already been developed into a Hollywood, maybe it wasn't Hollywood, but it was a film, uh, a cinema, a, a film, I think it was Hollywood, called um, variously titled The Prince of Jutland or sometimes Royal Deceit. And that features a young um, Christian Bale as the protagonist, Amleth. 
or Amlad, he's called in that. And that's a really good film. It's a really good adaptation of the original story, but it's nowhere near as uh, ambitious and uh, cinematic and high budget as this one. Okay, so I mean, I even on my opinion of the movie, taking that in, I will, you know, bring in my opinion here. Uh, I thought it was a very good movie. I think one thing is that filmgoers, especially in America, we are deprived of any good, like high budget movies that they want to make because pretty much everything is now case. racial quotas on the on the casting choices and and etc. of that sort. Which this is not, you know, there are no. Uh, like the new Viking series, there is no African Viking queens. Uh, there are no try, trying to make more politically correct messages or celebrate multiculturalism or diversity or tolerance or anything of like that. But it's very much a film that you, it resembles an ancient saga. And, you know, it has the same morality, same honor code as it. And it's not, you know, there is no, you know, there is no odes to diversity or progressive tolerance or how, you know, we need to be more respectful of women or <laughs> certain or like different sexual orientations or anything that you would see coming out from most big budget Hollywood movies. It is very much a film free of that. And, you know, it's also a movie that can some of the, with the action scenes and other things can it can appeal to a wide audience. So how do you think of it as uh, with this point that it is very much even though it's well, it's based on an ancient story. Do you really feel that it captures the mood and setting and themes and values of the ancient sagas? I think it it good uh, job of doing that, but bear in mind that saga literature is pretty boring to read because it isn't written anything like a novel like we understand like even the medieval literature from france and england like this arthurian stuff there you're sort of moving towards the novel as a format that we recognize um and even like you know much older literature like the odyssey it the epic poems like odyssey and beowulf in fact too are more uh, entertaining in, in general than the Icelandic sagas because the sagas can often be they're often structured as just literally listing events one by one and they don't say stuff like what was the you know the inner state of mind of the character at that moment you don't get any of those insights uh, you have to infer them from like their behaviors and um, so it, it just is it, I think I think sagas are great to read and um, th but this and this does like follow that because it seems like a very almost a, a very dry like emotionless world sometimes compared to like what we see in greek literature where it describes people weeping and stuff like that over their fallen comrades there's nothing like that in the sagas these people don't weep uh, or they don't seem to show much emotion but obviously they they were humans and they probably did but uh, it's just the way that the saga literature is uh, it has its own conventions but this is very um this is very faithful to sources of all sorts not just the sagas but archaeological evidence as well and I think you're right to say that it doesn't really follow the, the trends of wokeness. Although um, I understand Eggers has paid lip service to these trends in, in uh, his public appearances promoting the film. But in, in practice, he doesn't seem remotely concerned with them. It is a very, it's, it's been called, you know, hyper-masculine, toxic masculine, and all this sort of this, this stuff. Um, he did include... Uh, and I didn't realize when I watched this, watched the film in the cinema, he did include one of these uh, women, um, what do you call it? A shield maiden leading a, a group of Vikings. But uh, you, you won't notice it in the film unless you know where to look for it. It's, it's a moment in, uh, in Ukraine when they're going down a river and it's a boat in the, in the background. And you can just make out that the the leader who, who's at the top of the boat is actually a woman, and he and she and charges Eggers, in at the end when they raid the village, and you notice she has like a yeah. female voice, and like wait, what's going yeah, on? But it's like, like very uh, not focused on. Yeah, and and Eggers even in an interview with Vanity Fair uh, justifies this scene, saying you know his advisor um, for the film, one of his two advisors, one of them was a feminist who has in runes on the front of her book, smashed the patriarchy. And the other is um, the head of archeology span at Uppsala University, Neil Price, who, who I've met. And he, um, he's advising a lot on the archeological stuff. 
And, uh, you know, he's, Egger said, you know, all this stuff about loads of shield maidens everywhere and Vikings on the History Channel, that's made up, that's not real. But there are some rare cases in the archaeological record of like, for example, a woman who appears to have been a, a leader of Vikings. And so I put her in there and he puts her in the background. So, you know, as you know, this would be an uncommon, un uncommon thing in the Viking world. It did exist, though, that there are some women uh, with prominent social roles. Um, it's kind of like in more recent history, you can imagine something like Queen Elizabeth I. Now, she was the, you know, the head of the state. She was the queen of England, uh, you know, the, the head of the church, everything. Uh, but her society was patriarchal. And there was no saying, you, ca you can't reimagine Elizabethan England as a matriarchal society because there's a female uh, on the throne. It, that simply isn't true. And sometimes you get women in positions of power in, you know, in deeply patriarchal societies. And the same was true of the Viking world. Uh, which Neil Price himself once described as the most homophobic culture that ever existed. And there is a lot of attempts of some of these modern pagans to uh, claim that, you know, that they were gender fluid, that there was all these, uh, you know, they didn't ascribe to the bigoted uh, Christian uh, view of that. That's where homo uh, homophobic attitudes came from. And that somehow everyone was like, oh, of course you're a third gender or whatever. And that there is this, themes going on into it. But even uh, with Price's book, I think he wrote um, Children of Ash and Elm, correct? The recent book? Oh, yeah, and the, the Viking Way is his famous one. That's what people yeah, And know. so I even he read that and he was put this all this stuff in there and he was like saying like oh you know that they have he would try to find the progressive elements and then he concluded but this is all like very minor stuff and he's like they were actually extremely homophobic and had very uh male chauvinist attitudes and then he's but it like concludes with that and it's like well why are you trying to put this stuff up but it's likely to appeal to people who want to find modern um precedents for our not not modern precedents but ancient precedents for progressive ways which uh, you you always have to make the appeal to but i guess the second advisor to the film wanted uh more of that for the vikings but a lot of that didn't seem to seep through you do mention well, in your review that there is um there is a scene where there is a um a he witch who is uh, wearing what well, uh, average viewer probably would not would not catch this but you point out that he is wearing uh, a shirt that would be something more that a woman would wear and it is a, a a cross-dressing moment of sorts but you say that that's not necessarily historically accurate how accurate are some of them i mean there are some that are just like pretty crazy such as the wolf initiation scene with amleth and his father in uh the underground of a temple and also the he witch uh, that is depicted with who has a who has a skull of a jester who was a mentor to Amleth as a child. How accurate are these scenes in the religion depicted of the Vikings in the film? I think a lot of them are pretty damn accurate. I mean, for the most part, I was really impressed by the rituals, which are imagined based on, you know, limited source material. Um, and I think they've done an excellent job of consulting um, archaeological evidence rather than historical evidence because it's when it comes to rituals there's not very much written down uh, it's more just got mythology in the in in the in the historical sources so rituals rely so much on archaeological evidence and that hasn't been so much of a uh, it hasn't informed a lot of other viking age um you know depictions of the viking age in popular culture so that was that was really nice to see one of my favorite films is also the one that I criticized the most heavily. Um, one of my favorite scenes, sorry, is and that's the scene which uh, Neil, uh, Neil Price was also responsible for, where as uh, despite him saying that, like uh, Neil Price saying that it's the most homophobic culture in history, he also has a theory which is hotly contested uh, uh, by people like Jens Peter Schutt, uh, that that the Odin cult involved cross-dressing and that Odin himself was a cross-dresser. And that I disagree with. And in the scene in question shows an Odinic priest who nobody realizes this because they don't know about Viking era clothes, but he's wearing a woman's dress and women's brooches. The two, the two, the common, the typical dress for that, for a woman in the Viking age is this, this, uh, you know, 
strapped shoulderless dress with two brooches. Uh, and that's what he's wearing. But you wouldn't notice that if you weren't familiar because you can't see him from the waist down so easily because uh, it's in a dark cave. But that is obviously based on Neil Price's theories because he's the main proponent of that theory. And we know he's uh, an advisor for the film. But basically, he's based that on two things. One myth where Odin actually does cross-dress, but not as part of any ritual or anything. He cross-dresses to disguise himself so he can go and rape a woman. So it's definitely not gay or anything like that. It's just him, uh, Odin likes to rape women. Viking Age uh, ideas of gender, <laughs> therefore, you go out and rape. But the... Um, the, uh, the other thing he uses, which he, I think is, and Jens Peter Schutt has convincingly argued Neil Price has got wrong, is when Loki accuses, Loki, who is a, a, a god who transgresses gender norms and does do things that are considered uh, shamefully homosexual in the Viking culture, he accuses Odin of being Gragor, doing these perverted things also. But he, the context is just saying, you lived, you lived on Samso, the island, as a woman and practice Scyther, which is a type of magic associated with fate, which is very strongly integrated into this film uh, because Scyther comes from a word meaning uh, thread, and it was associated with women because it was a way for divining the future, to tell the future, and, uh, and the future and fate in their, in their worldview was a comprised of threads of fate which were woven by these semi-divine female entities called the Norns. So within the story, the, the gesture at the beginning warns of like the mystery of women and how it's connected to these threads of fate. And when Bjork's character, who is a seeress, appears, she's spinning wall threads. So there's all these threads fates, which is great because Scyther was a, a, a female type of magic and, and men weren't supposed to practice it. But Odin did practice it and learned it from a woman. And that was considered shameful. That's the only thing that is that we can infer was meant when Loki said you lived as a woman and practiced either. It means he practiced magic. Loki doesn't say he he didn't live, you know, dressing up as a woman. There's no there's no mention anywhere that men had to dress up as women to do this. So this is just invented by Neil Price. Um, but having said that, the scene is really good and and, and very and there's it's it's one of my most um, preferred scenes in the film because it's so mystical and he. He brings out this. This Odinic priest brings out the severed head of the jester, who, uh, as you say, uh, was so a mentor for Amleth uh, in his childhood. Just as um, in Shakespeare's Hamlet, uh, Hamlet himself is encounters a grave digger uh, and sees there the skull of the, the court jester who uh, he loved as a child called Yorick, and then you get the famous lines, "Alas." Um, poor Yorick, I knew thee well. Well, in this one, Amleth, uh, in the original Amleth story, there is no court jester or no Yorick. But here, uh, Eggers has integrated this uh, court jester, Heimer, played by um, Willem Dafoe, the meme lord. Um, and he's fan a fantastic character. I really like him. He's involved in an Odinic initiation scene at the beginning where the, the, the young boy and his father are like initiated as... Odin uh, as wolves of Odin and they become they they progress from dogs into men uh, in this very interesting initiation into manhood but here he's dead and the in this cave scene and the Odinic shaman uh, uses m magic to channel the, uh, the the spirit of the the jester from hell into the head so that it can speak from the grave and this is an actual practice that's recorded not only among the Norse and not only is done by Odin himself, who takes the head of Mimir from hell um, and uses that to and, and uses magic and herbs to preserve that head so that it speaks wisdom to him from hell, which was regarded as a source of wisdom because the Mimir Maivr, the well of Mimir, contained the waters of wisdom. And th this is goes right back to Indo-European beliefs because you see the same stuff in Celtic mythology where heads in wells are associated as, uh, with the source of knowledge. Uh, and uh, I'm going to do a whole video on this to go how deep it goes. It goes right back thousands of years. It's a fascinating thing. And so I was really fascinated to see this 
you know, this head motif, this head as a prophet, as a source of wisdom, so skillfully integrated into the, into the plot of the film while also nodding to Shakespeare as well. Uh, I just thought that was a, a touch of genius on Egger's part. I actually think that one of the interesting things about the movie is how, as you mentioned this earlier and you mentioned in your review, is how it inter incorporates a very supernatural element, but it also leaves it up to the viewers, as you said, whether they're it may be hallucinating or may be real. And you, it's, it leaves it up to the viewer to decide what's, what is real and what is not. And there's several scenes such as this where he fights a drogger and then it's like implied that maybe he didn't really fight him. He's just like hallucinating. And also the Valkyrie scenes, all maybe those are just a dream state or him, you know, passing on. Those it leaves it up to the viewer, but it does incorporate this. And he does, and he and Eggers does this with all of his movies. I've only seen I've only seen The Witch. I have not seen uh The Lighthouse. I've only seen The Witch. But even in that movie, with that supernatural elements, it's still there. It's like, well, is this really happening? Is this really there? But it tries to capture the historical moment that these characters are in and be very accurate to their time and how they thought and their values. It is not modern people transported to a historical setting like many other movies. He does try to faithfully capture how the people were in their particular time and setting. I think with one of these things, you know, going back to this point is the type the even the movie's theme and and driving force is something that i think a lot of modern viewers would find off-putting or something out of line with what they're told to believe is like the more as the right moral thing to do is that the character is primarily driven by revenge now we of course have many vengeance and revenge films but it's always seen that the revenge is bad unless the revenge is against somebody who is completely terrible and totally out of line with what modern values are but even the villain of the movie you're able to see his perspective and he's not as you know this caricature of a villain that there are honorable aspects of the villain himself and that there is some ambiguity a little bit of moral ambiguity with it but you're still rooting for the protagonist in the film even though he is involved in <laughs> slavery uh just <laughs> murdering villagers he does and he, and he even gets involved later i don't want to give too many spoilers but maybe involved even in the murder of family members and yet you're still seeing him as the hero and as the protagonist even though he's doing very things that we would think are terrible and there's not even really a justification put through this it's just saying that this is a part of his fate and this is what the norns have weaved for him so i wanted to go more into that is like how do you view as these themes and values of the film especially with fate i mean fate is the uh, arguably probably one of the primary or the primary theme of it it's always brought up is like this is part of my fate i can't resist my fate i must i must choose the fate you know even with bjork scene you know telling him that you you're you're abandoning your fate you must go to it you made us you made a vow you must uphold it and so I want to get your thoughts on how those themes, on what those themes are, and how they're very different from what a normal movie would try to uphold, even if it's set in a historical setting completely alien from our age. Well, I think one thing I really liked about it, and it's such a, a break from the norm, is that it doesn't really attempt to impose a modern value system or, and by modern, I don't just mean like the modern woke one. I mean, not even like a 19th century Victorian Christian one or any or, or whatever. It doesn't impose those onto this world. It takes for granted that there was a completely different moral system uh, among pagan Icelanders. And that's the one that we're that this character exists in. So the I've heard, you know, the Christian reviewer uh, Henry um, Hopwood saying that uh, it's it's, you know, it's amoral, but it isn't actually. It's extremely consistent with the morals. Fate is the main theme of the film, as you say. And this is seen, this is so often the, the, the a massive theme in pagan literature of the Germanic peoples. You can see it in Anglo-Saxon and, and, and Viking literature or, you know, Icelandic literature, which is our source for the Viking Age, but is not generally contemporary with the Viking Age. But the... Also in ancient Greek stuff, it's like a huge part of the pagan uh, perspective is to is very complicated mindset where they simultaneously must 
accept their fate and be fatalistic, amorphity, but also have, they admire a strong will to power which challenges one's fate. And that complicated balance between accepting and resisting one's fate, both seen in, as heroic in different ways, is captured in this film. And it's so hard to describe even in, in the saga sources, but fate is sometimes described as something that you know, even the gods must be subject to. But other times it's very you know, celebrated when people resist their fate. Uh, he is in two points in the film, departs from his fate. And the tagline for the film is, in, is conquer your fate. So there's clearly the marketing team have picked up on this major theme of the film is that this guy is going to conquer his own fate. But the, you know, the same stuff is in Hamlet to some extent. And even in The Lion King, which is an adaptation of Hamlet, like the little lion goes and lives, it goes away from his fate to live with uh, the warthog and the meerkat. And then he receives a vision in the sky of, of the lion daddy telling him, get back to your fate. So in this context, the lion dad is, is replaced by Bjork, the, uh, the, the post-punk pop star from Iceland who appears as a kind of Norn, and she tells him to return to his fate. Um, later in the film, he has, uh, and this is a spoiler, um, there is a problem because he realizes that his two sacred duties within his culture, within the morals and values of his culture, are now in conflict. The principal one is vengeance. You have to seek vengeance on the death uh, when a kinsman is killed, not doing so would mean you were not really a man. And if anyone accused you of not being, a, you know, a manly man, not, you know, being as strong or, or capable or masculine uh, as, as you should or you wanted to be perceived, you would be legally justified in killing them. And um, the whole culture was extremely, had, it was a very, you know, litigious culture with lawyers and, and you, know, law, you know, preventing libel and defamation. They weren't just like barbarians who went around bashing each other on the head. There were strict laws about not calling people certain things and doing this kind of thing. But if someone did issue a challenge of that sort and any insult of that sort relating to honor was considered a challenge, you would have to meet it with violence. And if you didn't, then the implication was that it was, that the accusation was true. And so not seeking vengeance um, for the murder of a kinsman, which is pretty much the most worst thing. So if someone murders your kinsman, you have to kill one of their kinsmen or kill them. You have to. So it's not like that's not explained in the film, but like it's not just like some Tarantino film where this guy's like he's crazy mad for vengeance. He's just completely insane for vengeance, which he, he does appear to be, to be fair, his character. But he's also within a culture where that would be absolutely expected. And to be anything except focused on vengeance within his culture would be the crazy outsider perspective and unmanly and extremely shameful position to take. So he needs to kill, he needs to kill his uncle. And um, yes, his uncle is a kinsman to an extent, but he is not, he killed a king as well. So regicide uh, as well as fratricide are both extremely shameful. So this man killed his own brother. That makes him fratricidal. And he killed a king, regicidal. Uh, so Amleth is, has much stronger blood tie to his father than to his uncle anyway. So he, he, Amleth is justified in killing his uncle. He, should, he has to kill his uncle by the, within that um, system of, of values. But he also has a responsibility passed down to his, from his father, which is represented in the initial Odinic initiation by the, um, the jester of, of, of preserving the bloodline which his father bestowed on him. And it connects in that scene. You can see Odin, Odinic imagery, uh, linking a tree, which I suppose is the world tree, but in this film is imagined as a family tree uh, containing the lineage of the royal family from which Amleth descends. Uh, and he has to preserve this Odinic royal bloodline. But at the end, he's like, shall I go and live with my Slavic waifu and just have kids and have a nice life and forget about vengeance. Uh, but what about my duty of vengeance? And um, someone, you know, some people have said in reviews, like, it doesn't make sense. Why didn't he just go for the cozy life with the waifu? Well, that part of that, you don't understand that the actual 
shame of not having achieved vengeance would make it almost impossible for him to live anywhere because he would be an outcast uh, and no one would consider him a, a true man. But secondly, he does have a way to preserve the, the bloodline, which I won't say here because it's a, a, a big spoiler, but um, that's revealed to him in a vision. So he knows that he, the bloodline can be preserved and he can achieve vengeance. And we already know right at the beginning of the film that he will achieve vengeance because it's said at the, in the opening lines of the film, the narrator says, we're going to tell you a story. Uh, and that opening narration invokes the god Odin as a prayer. So it's like, just like the opening of the Odyssey, the first ever European story that we have, it begins with an invocation of a goddess, a deity, and then it tells you about what the story is going to be. And then bam, you get into the story. So I love that it, it you know, it takes it to the very roots of European storytelling. And another thing is that he wanted to actually achieve vengeance is because literally the supernatural elements in the movie are telling him that he can't escape his fate, that this is a part of his fate and he must embrace his fate no matter what. And that's why he has this conflict, because even when he goes to Iceland, he's already being a successful berserker warrior. And, you know, he has to be reminded that you are avoiding your fate and you have to embrace it. That's why he goes all the way to Iceland to do this. And that is something that maybe in other films, like, you know, even a lot of Hollywood movies, it's like, well, fate doesn't determine this. Like, my circumstance doesn't determine this. It's your own choice. It's a very uh, somewhat an anti-existentialist uh, theme in that, like, ex existentialism. Like, we make our own destiny. You know, you, we can choose this. It's not any outside forces. But within this movie, it's like there is this all the elements of the world the supernatural is telling you and demanding you and requiring you to do this and you cannot shirk off and make your own choices is that this has been the the fate weave for you and you must uphold it uh, otherwise you know you're going against the natural order uh, which is something that is um very much against what a lot of hollywood movies are about you know eventually the good guy yeah. part would be like actually you know what i'm not gonna i'm not gonna subscribe to this this superstition and this cultural um, hubris, I'm just going to go on and make my own way and have a happy life. But instead he realizes like, you know, the whole natural order is telling is sending him visions and demanding that he uphold the oath that he had sworn. Yeah. To his father. And, that, and then he goes on. It's like but, in contrast to like the Ragnar Lothbrok character from Vikings. It's so popular with some people who actually, you know, denies the existence of the god he's basically like an atheist humanist like that kind of person did not exist in that world and like trying to impose some like french you know cigarette smoking existentialist crap into the, into the viking world it just didn't happen like the idea that camus stuff was like oh it's authentic existence to you know ex to deny the supernatural there's nothing authentic about that the, his entire worldview is informed by the existence of the gods of the norns like you say and fate and there's the Viking expression that uh, I can't remember which saga it's from. But someone says that the day of my death was decided long ago. So they don't go out thinking, oh, maybe I'll get killed today. They don't, I already know the day I'm going to die is already decided. So I might as well fight anyway. And this is what Caesar said about the Celts, who also believed in sim you know, similar concepts of reincarnation of the soul. Um, you know, they could they were never afraid to die. They would always go into battle because it didn't make a difference to them. So when you take this uh, this worldview on board, you can get the why the characters are so violent and so brutal in the film because they have a completely different attitude to death. Death is the death isn't some like unfortunate end. It's the ultimate goal of their life to to face death. Uh, you know, with their chin up, welcoming it. Uh, they want to go to Valhall. And that is why I'm so glad to see that this was that this film actually tries to in, depict someone with that attitude towards death and fate. Uh, he he doesn't uh, shirk from it. He's you know he want he doesn't he he he's going to face his fate as you say. He's going to go straight into it and um, welcomes death, even you know sacrificing a cozy easy life, um, which is warned against in. Um, in specifically in the uh, in the Hovermore, like this kind of thing about trying to grow old is not so great. Uh, it's no, no, not such a great thing to do. 
Yeah, and that's uh, why the only way you could get to Valhalla is through uh, death and battle, as is the as the uh, as most people would even know. It was a you know you couldn't dying in old age was considered shameful, and in other and on other societies, even though many of the heroes of the sagas also die into old age, but that is after achieving many great deeds, and they had, even in old age they were still trying to uphold their honor, even when they're uh, long past the ability to. Uh, you know, enact violence and enact mm. proper retribution. And some specifically, some specifically, Odinic, Odin himself gifts several different poets in different um, in Nornagestathor and in Widsith, the English poem. They're gifted with uh, extra long life, where they live several generations, like Starkovr, who lives three generations, because Odin blesses him that. So some people are actually given the gift of old age, extreme old age, to live like three hundred years or whatever, by Odin so that they can meet all different people through generations and tell poems about them. So there is one thing of like Odin, Odin to meet Odin, to go to Valhall, you have to die in battle. But there are other things because there's this heavy association of Odin with poets and, um, uh, you know, uh, what we, so we call them poets, shops or schools, but they would really be singing these songs. They would really be like performers. And um, I think the court jester is quite a good Odinic parallel for this as well, because it's a kind of entertainer. And uh, these people would definitely be considered like uh, connected to Odin. Uh, and also you can go to, you can be dedicated to Odin as a sacrifice by just being hung and stabbed with a spear. So you don't have to die in battle. If you're, if you're ritually devoted to Odin, then you go to him as well. That's uh that's very different from our ways of life for many years, but it is interesting that it's captured and there's not a, uh, you know, a finger tutting about uh, how they lived. It's just that it tries to capture how they lived and how they viewed the world. And going on to this point and going back to the review that we talked about um, by this author that wrote for I am seven, I am 70, 1776, uh, Henry Hopwood Phillips, you know, his review is very critical. And he was like, essentially saying that this is a type of post-Christian movie with uh, nihilistic themes and, you know, it's completely empty and barren world. That's like very grim. And uh, it's in that Hollywood is intentionally doing this. I've seen this criticism made by other people is that the Hollywood and the cultural interest in Vikings is somehow uh, secretly anti-Christian, and it's, it's something that it's being used to undermine, uh, you know, traditional Western culture, and that the reason why they're upholding it is for some secret anti-Christian message. What do you think about that, both with, uh, you know, the reviewer in I Am 1776 talking about how this movie is this grim uh, post-Christian world that's being promoted by the powers that be, and also that all this obsession with Vikings and the culture is somehow uh, some secret anti-Christian plot. Well, I read that review by Henry Hotwood Phillips. I should say, I uh, full disclosure, I do know him. I used to know him uh, many years ago, like eight or nine years ago. I used to uh, drink with him uh, a couple of times in London. And um, he's knowledgeable very much about Eastern Christianity and Byzantium and things like that. Uh, you might not necessarily not be familiar with some of the pagan themes. And what he perceived to be post-Christian and nihilistic was, in fact, not in, not very not very inaccurate a depiction of pre-christian uh values rather than anti the absence of values but he might not be able to perceive them as values without having that background knowledge uh i certainly don't think there's a, an attack on christian christian values intended what they're trying to do is depict what european values prior to christianity looked like and if that horrifies christians then they can be surely more confident than in the in the value of their own religion but uh, uh it's simply what 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 people believed fate was more important and even early christians in anglo-saxon culture said that uh, even god was inferior to word which is word means fate in anglo-saxon uh so it carried on for a long time even after paganism went away the belief in fate i mean there was still fatalistic warrior culture even after they converted to christianity for hundreds of years um his review is not that bad it he he appreciates the script uh which uh and and gives it you know he says he, he appreciates the that it's well written and but he criticizes the silly accents and i agree with him there the accents were silly i don't see the need to give people 
this accent. Like if they're speaking English to represent Old Norse and just have them speak English in proper English, why do they have to speak in an accent? It's ridiculous. Um, I, do, I, do, I just think that's a, a, that comes from the Vikings um, TV series. This no one used to do that. If you depicted Vikings, you'd have them either speak in an American accent or a British accent and stick with one or the other. Um, or just have it in Old Norse, which I think perhaps Eggers was going to do, but the studio were like, no, don't, we don't want to do a subtitled film. It would have been cool if it was all in Old Norse. Uh, but that yeah, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't see the point in this halfway house like uh, of accents. Uh, he says um, some other things. He says, thoughts, places, and feelings stay true to their period and give the material a potent, if sometimes humdrum grounding. It also has the slightly disorienting, disorienting effect of revealing a world without explaining it. So I think that was a fair criticism on his part because I understood a lot of these things in this world just from a glance because of my background knowledge of this in the subject. Whereas he, being an, an, a not, you know, a, a more educated than the typical audience member, still doesn't have any references for these things. So he still found himself in the dark. So that is actually a legitimate criticism of the film. So I think a lot of people aren't going to be able to fully understand it, which is a, a problem, I suppose. Uh, but for me, it didn't affect my enjoyment at all because I I want I don't want to be handheld all the way through a film on on the subject that I know so well. Um, and on the other side, on the other side, that I don't like about his review is that it, yeah, it's, it it does lack appreciation for traditional modes of storytelling and the attitude towards fate, which is as I said present in the ancient literature. And and he also says at one point that this character doesn't challenge his fate. Uh, but that's wrong. Obviously, as we've already discussed, he, at two points, he does challenge and depart from his path of fate. And that's obviously a major part of the film because the tagline is conquer your fate. So I, I disagree with Henry on that point. Uh, so, yeah, I don't also like the way that in the, in the review, Henry uh, conflates ego. He talks about egos as sharing in the same delusions of original sin and this sort of combines like modern freudian conception of like a part of the self the ego which must be repressed like a christian belief in like that, that pride has to be repressed which is a sort of a, a, a middle eastern self-abasement that i disagree with and was certainly absent in that culture like everything uh, about the germanic culture was about speaking uh, highly of yourself of your family of your people uh, and speaking up for your your who you are but not overstepping your place within society in the process so if you're a slave obviously you don't get to speak up so much understood understood and yeah that makes i i actually thought the review was uh very uncharitable so to speak to the movie and it was just something that uh, the i feel like the reviewer went and that he would have otherwise enjoyed it but he felt that it was uh, a part of this uh post-christian cultural element that some of these other people have criticized but going into this i guess this will be the final like, question is something else oh, go ahead I wanted, uh, he, he, not in the review but on twitter i saw something that i was thought maybe a bit more revealing about someone commented in his review that it was calling it a post-christian aesthetic um like you said because i don't think he actually said post-christian aesthetic in the review i can't remember but someone calls it that in the on a comment and henry responded saying that it was all a bit gay manosphere so i think if he's saying that this is eggers has been influenced by online right-wing uh culture uh, by by when he says gay manosphere i'm not sure what he's exactly referring to then that is an interesting accusation in itself because i don't so certainly Eggers wouldn't admit that if it was the case. And if it is true, then it shows an, a victory on the part of online right wingers for the successful penetration of the culture creating class. So that, that, that we're actually seeing now cultural texts being created, which reflect, uh, you know, which don't reflect the values of the ruling uh, powers, which is fantastic if it's true. But I'm not sure that it is true. And I don't really see this as being gay in any way. In fact, it's one of the least gay films I've seen in a long time. <laughs> I would probably actually agree with that, too. I mean, you don't really have uh, any gay themes and uh, every man is trying to be manly. And even the men who are not seen as manly, there are as, like villains. I would say um, Fjolnir's son, I think he's called, they don't necessarily, or it's Thor, Thorier, is seen as kind of like a little brat who's not 
quite up to the standards of manhood. I don't know if that was maybe intentional or it's just they just tried to find a very young actor and he's always um, berating uh, the protagonist. That's it's almost seen that like this is a not a real man. Uh, some expect you know, there's not there's very much an upholding of what liberals would call as toxic masculinity in the movie. And there is no condemnations of it. And even when toxic masculinity leads to uh, excessive violence, there is no there is no criticism at all. It's just like this is the way of the world. And that is like very refreshing for a film to be in that regard. And also, even though with some of the women, you know, they're maybe not they're definitely not like weak and submissive women who are just out there, you know, baking bread all day, but they're not necessarily seen as great warriors. And usually they're using their feminine wiles to nip it, to manipulate and scheme, uh, which is also depicted in many ancient stories from the sagas and even to the Homeric epics of women uh, manipulating men to do what they want. And I don't think that's necessarily um, upholding any type of feminism so it, it this it is as we've been saying throughout this review it is uh it is a breath of fresh air to see this movie and to take in something that you wouldn't often see from hollywood but going into uh, and i would say this is the final question it's a broad question is that you know the viking obsession in the culture is a big deal i mean you have the Vikings TV show, you have Last Kingdom, you have Wardruna, the music of Wardruna and, and bands like that of Heilung. And then you just add video games, uh, the latest Assassin's Creed, uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, numerous other examples. What do you make of the cultural obsession? Why do you think it's there? And what would you say of some of, of what would you give as your opinion of some of these cultural media that we're seeing lately? Well, that's a great question. I started commenting on it, like even when Valhalla Rising came out in 2009, I was sent by the studio at the time I was doing film reviews for magazines and things. So I was given a screener before it came out in the UK to watch it and review it. And I, at that time, was a pagan as I am now. And I was looking forward to a time when the depiction of paganism in popular culture would result in its uh, wider dissemination. And, and, and I, I, I believed in, at the time, I was very influenced by Jungian psychology. I'm less now, but I believed in these like dormant archetypes. And in another example of this widely accepted new Viking culture that's in the media is this so-called Viking music, which I criticized in the review. And I don't actually have any problem with it. I like some of this music, this new neo-folk type of, uh, it mixes martial industrial with neo-folk and world music, all different influences from Mongolian throat singing to didgeridoos, and you get all this stuff, tribal drumming, like it's fun. It's, it, it works in a cinematic context because it drives the adrenaline and it keeps the, you know, the, the, the adrenaline pumping during these high octane action sequences, which I really enjoy. But it's just not anything like what I imagine uh, Viking era music would have sounded like. And, um, and I think that's in, impor quite important for people to recognize because it's now become like the authentic Viking thing. And once I criticized, back when I had a big Twitter account, I criticized that music there and people said stuff like, Survivor Dive just doesn't get the spirit of the Viking age. And that's what this music reflects. Like they're talking bollocks. This doesn't reflect anything of that time. It is nothing to do with that time. It's invented in the last 20 years. And some of it's good. I don't have a problem with people liking this kind of music. It's fun, but it's modern. It has to be understood as modern. Uh, it uses instruments that existed at that time. But, you know, it do that doesn't mean it sounds like music from that time. That's just the instruments. You can make any kind of music with, uh, with instruments from those times. You could make, you know, something sounded like uh, drum and bass or trap or whatever. doesn't mean that's what people listen to then. What we've seen recently is that the style of lyre that existed in the Germanic world, even as far you know, west as the Anglo-Saxon England, is the same style of lyre that was used all the way in Central Asia by Turkic peoples. And it, today, all the Germanic you know, bards are gone, all the Germanic songs are gone. But the, in, you know, some of the Central Asian cultures still have this traditional uh, musical form where epic stories are passed on through songs uh, accompanied by lyre. And that's what's described in our written sources for Anglo-Saxons, Vikings, etc. We're talking about a man who comes, a scald or a shop who comes and sings a song 
a huge song which tells an epic story of some hero or a god and he tells it while singing it over the sound of lyre and it probably sounded nothing like uh, all this even if it included throat singing which is uh, speculative based on an account of an arab who heard vikings on the volga uh, singing and he said that they sounded like dogs growling and that could be interpreted to mean that they had a, a form of throat singing but if you listen to how throat singing is uh, in, integrated into the epics of uh, Mongolian um, uh, lyre singers, for example, it's not the same as all uh, uh, what you hear throat singing integrated into like modern the Vikings music. It's completely different. Uh, and um, I, I, I think that's just one of the kind of problems with authenticity that has, has emerged as a result of this hugely popular Viking subculture that comes through popular media. Uh, it's good in the sense that it's, it's, it reflects people are now into their history, but it's bad in the sense that it distorts it. And I, and I actually predicted um, some of this would all happen in an article that was published by Medievalist.net, I think in 2013 or 2014, and it was called The Barbarians Aren't Going Away. And I basically said, you know, the, the popularity of Skyrim, Game of Thrones, Vikings, it will continue and continue and continue and it won't be a passing trend because it reflects a lack in our modern society. People look around them at the changing uh, uh, gender dynamics, the changing demographics, the changing values shifting like, like sands in a desert and they, they feel like the ground is giving way beneath them and they look back to the past naturally for some kind of stability but they're not finding in popular media an accurate depiction of a depiction of the past nothing approaching it so the northman at least is a step in the right direction uh, and now we're going to hopefully see more media that uh, tries as hard as eggers has to be faithful to the historical sources i agree i hope that more more is like this rather than the uh, vikings tv show the vikings tv show is uh, not very good i mean the writing's just bad there's a lot of problems with it that would be worth its own episode which i probably won't go i actually do very much enjoy last kingdom even though i find that as a much more superior show uh than than the show vikings some of the viking music is okay some of it's still, like really cheesy or just it all sounds the same uh, a lot of people like watching those youtube channels like 10 hours of dark and powerful viking music you always see like dozens of videos like that but it's okay to listen to for a little bit but I would probably, I mean, as you said, it's not exactly what the real Vikings were listening to. And maybe, so, I mean, I, there's been recreations of what ancient Greeks and ancient Romans were listening to. I don't know if we'll ever have that opportunity for the Vikings but or ancient Germanics. But maybe one day we'll, <laughs> we'll have a more accurate understanding of what they were, uh, the type of music they were producing. But that is it. For this IQ supplement, I'm also, I know we gave, allowed uh, Tom to promote his conference earlier, but he's got several other things to promote for the end. So I'm going to let it, uh, him to, you know, if viewers really liked what he had said and want to follow more of his work, I'm going to let, give him the opportunity to give the full rundown of where to follow his work. So Tom, uh, tell the good people where to follow you. It's very good of you, Scott. Um, yeah, well, my main output is my youtube channel survive the jive and i've got on there all kinds of documentaries like properly edited documentaries that you can sit down and enjoy with a beer or whatever um and learn all about the neolithic indo-europeans or the vikings or how vikings integrated into britain all kinds of like obscure topics you won't find elsewhere so i'm sharing this knowledge with people for free but I also do live streams on a separate channel where I just chat with people and answer their questions. And that's called Jive Talks. So you can see me, you can see uh, some of those on YouTube too. I also have, I have uploaded some of these things to Odyssey. Uh, if, you're, if you're against YouTube, that's an option. But if you want to catch like every single update from me, uh, the only way to make sure you catch every update is on Telegram. I have a Telegram feed called the All Feed, Survive the Jive All Feed. So if you get on that, you'll get all my videos, all my takes on film and whatever else I'm talking about, uh, podcast appearances and whatnot. And it's, it's, it's focused on pagan. I focus on pagan content a lot because I'm a pagan, but I'd say most of my followers aren't pagans and they just follow because they, they want to learn about ancient history. 
And uh, if, if, if you're not a pagan, but you're just someone who wants to know about European heritage and what life was like in pre-Christian Europe, well, look up Survive the Jive. All right. Well, great. So make sure you guys follow all those links. And it's been great having you on time. We'll have to have you back on maybe when there's like a new Viking movie out or something, because there's always like a new media format or something related. Uh, so we'll definitely need to have you back on. But thanks again for coming on. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And until next time, stay respected.